Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will be concluding our discussion of Uthman's long reign. All that discontent we talked about last time will begin to get out of hand, but as things get more volatile, the Arabs providing our narrations again disagree on what was going on, so we'll be sifting through some contradictory accounts one more in this episode, unfortunately. I'll do my best to keep things tidy, and when it's all said and done, it will be difficult to speak of a united ummah ever again. Episode 11, Uthman's End The events we'll be discussing today are among the most contested in early Muslim history. It goes beyond the usual sort of dissonance, too. There is so much variation within each of the two main traditions that there is no need to present separate Sunni and Shi'i narratives, and it's enough to note that generally the Sunnah sympathize with Uthman, while the Shia do not. Remember, there weren't any of the ideological or religious differences that lead us to think of these two groups as different sects yet. The difference between the two was still purely political, so it might be more apt to think of the Sunnah and Shia as the government and opposition parties, respectively. That said, there are many Sunni narrations chiding Uthman and oppositional Shia ones of the Caliph trying hard to make things right. The challenge in telling this part of our story is more about piecing together a believable sequence of event which can account for at least some of the confusion that will ensue. Here's what we have to work with. Broadly speaking, I've come across two kinds of narrations about the events we're going to be talking about today. The first are general overviews, which summarize events vaguely, but offer a complete version of Uthman's last years as caliph. I'll give you a few examples of these soon, especially as two of our main sources, Al-Yaqubi and Al-Mas'udi, offer us their histories in a coherent flowing stream. So theirs are what I am calling general overviews. The encyclopedic Al-Tabari, however, has a lot more going on. His history contains several general narrations telling the whole story start to finish and about two dozen detailed narrations which focus on certain events which happened at some point during those years and reading him gives us a much fuller appreciation of this critical juncture in Arab history. Let's begin with Al-Yaqubi's general account as it's the shortest in our three main sources. He just says that people grew tired of Uthman after his sixth year in office listing a number of things people held against him most of which we've already mentioned. He goes on to say that in 656, rebellious armies arose from Iraq and Egypt and surrounded the capital, demanding Uthman step down. After their demands were ignored, they laid siege to the caliph's house, and things escalated from there. That's it. Al-Mas'udi's account is similarly brief. After mentioning some of the early opposition we discussed last episode, he says that in 656, three armies came to Medina, demanding the caliph behave more justly. Uthman asked Ali bin Abi Talib to go speak with them, and Ali got them to agree to turn back after the caliph promised to address their concerns. Days later, they caught a messenger from the caliph trying to sneak by them on the road to Egypt, with orders from Uthman calling for their punishment. Furious at their betrayal, they rode back to Medina and laid siege to the caliph's house for 40 days before things took a turn for the worse. So this is what general accounts are like, and there are many similarities and some notable differences between these two. Al-Tabari reports a handful of comparable general accounts, and we end up getting a much more diverse bunch. 
An infamous general narration is one I alluded to many episodes ago, which has a Yemeni Jew going around the caliphate making up lies about Osman in order to split the ummah apart. If you have an excellent memory, you might remember that back in episode 3, I mentioned how some of the more extreme Sunnis, in their efforts to shield early Muslims from any criticism, rely on narrations which blame a Abdullah ibn Sabah for all the early discord in the ummah. Well, 656 is when that fictitious troublemaker was at his busiest. By now, he is said to have already toured the entire caliphate, trying desperately to spread dissension among the Muslims. He came up empty-handed in Syria, met very limited success in Iraq, but found plenty to work with among the troops in Fustat. He molded their naive minds, convincing them that their caliph was ruling them unjustly and that their prophet would return from the dead just as Jesus had if they would only dare to put his ummah back on the right path. Their passions thus inflamed, the troops mutinied and sent an army to Medina, killing the caliph and splitting the ummah, all exactly according to the scheming Yemeni Jews' plan. There's not so much to say about this obvious fabrication, which is basically dripping with toxicity, except maybe to note the irony of how a story designed to shield the Arabs from looking bad makes them out as violent puppets instead. Okay, enough fun. We need to get serious about covering this part of the history. The 20-something detailed narrations in Al-Tabari present a great but not uncomplicated source for us to work with. There is a lot of conflicting information, and summarizing and commenting on each narration proved way too confusing. Instead, I broke each of them down into multiple themes, tallied up how many times these came up in the various tellings, and tried to fit as many of the accounts that presented the most common themes in what seemed like a plausible order. The story you're about to hear is the result of this process, and it starts two years before the showdown in Medina, in the year 654. Last episode, I literally ended my discussion of Kufa by saying that the once restive city would not exhibit any notable unrest for years to come. Its new governor, Sa'id ibn al-As, was not as popular as I had let on, though. He displayed the same favoritism that got him the job, and it led to resentment among the troops, much like Abdullah bin Abi Sarh's government had in Egypt. While his Islamic credentials were not as compromised as his predecessors, his rewarding of loyalists led to the alienation of a good chunk of the city's tribal armies. Here's the seemingly trivial event which set that powder keg on fire. After about five years in charge, Sa'id ibn al-As is said to have called the fertile lands of Iraq the gardens of Quraysh. He said this in public in Kufa, and his candid comment hit an already inflamed nerve. What the statement implied was that the conquered lands were the property of the caliph's tribe, to which the governor belonged. Madik ibn Hadith, a fascinating larger-than-life type character who will play an important role in our next few episodes, is said to have roared back in reply, Do you take what God has honored us with for our blood as your own? Madik was very popular in Kufa, and his fearless criticism of the governor earned him even more support. What's interesting about Madik is that he had no prestigious tribal ancestry or anything like that. His popularity was entirely due to his unique personality, and he shone his fiercest when he was delivering a polemic against tribal elites, Umayyad or otherwise. It's worth remembering that these cross-tribal appeals were only possible now that Islam had united the Arabs, and so he was a kind of pioneer in furthering the unity of the tribal armies, albeit behind his goals. One source says that after this spontaneous outburst, Sa'id's police chief tried to intimidate Madik and a handful of others into apologizing, but they beat him up and began to agitate against Sa'id and Osman even more openly. Now, the bit about roughing up the sheriff may not be true, 
But other sources agree that afterwards, Said wrote to the caliph asking for instructions, and the reply came to send Madik and a few of his key supporters to Muawiyah in Damascus. Unsurprisingly, Muawiyah didn't get along with these commies either, and he wrote to the caliph, calling them demons and hypocrites with no understanding of religion. He, in turn, forwarded them to Homs, which was being run by Abdurrahman ibn Khalid ibn al-Walid, son of Islam's most successful commander. Homs was the province closest to the borders of the Byzantine Empire at the time, and so its armies were some of the most experienced and effective in all the caliphate, which is why they were given to Abdurrahman, son of the famous general. Abdurrahman reprimanded the Kufans, and the dozen or so of them decided to make the journey to Medina to talk to the caliph in person. After arriving at the capital, they spoke to Uthman, stressing that they could no longer accept Sa'id ibn al-As as governor and asking him to replace him with Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, an early Muslim who had once governed neighboring Basra under Omar. A few days later, the band of Kufans heard that Uthman was going to turn down their request. They went around Medina asking for help, and after securing some capital, they rode back to Kufa to try and foment a rebellion against their unpopular governor. When they arrived, they found that Sa'id himself had been summoned back to the capital. The caliph had convened a meeting with all his governors so they could jointly discuss the growing discontent. Malik did not waste any time. He went around gathering pledges from the Kufans and is said to have secured over 10,000 supporters. He and his men now planned on blocking the governor on his way back to the city, forcing the caliph to pick a replacement. This was probably in early 655. The meeting called by Uthman presents compelling proof that there was substantial opposition to the caliph by this point. We have reports about what was said at this meeting, but we need to be careful with them as they're more likely to be impressions about the past than actual records of it. Muawiyah is said to have spoken first, saying that no opposition could be found coming from his lands as all the men under his charge were satisfied with his administration. Abdullah bin Amir, governor of Basra and capable military commander, is said to have advised the caliph to open up new battlefronts so that the troops would be too busy with war and glory to care about all this internal stuff. The tax-happy Abdullah bin Abi Sarh suggested the caliph use his wealth to divide and conquer, and finally, Sa'id ibn al-As, bitter at the success of his Kufan foes, recommended punishing the leadership of the opposition, saying that without them, the rest of it would just melt away. It probably did not escape your notice that each of these replies leans heavily on the speaker's publicly perceived persona, another thing which makes this narration very difficult to endorse. After further deliberation, the caliph sent all the governors back to their cities. Said ran into al-Ashtar's army at a spot called Jur'ah and was turned back. The Kufans sent a letter to Osman, telling him that they held him in high esteem and hated acting against his wishes, but that they could not tolerate Said as governor any longer. The caliph chose not to escalate things any farther, and he sent the man they asked for, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, to Kufa with a letter confirming him as their new governor. We'll end 655 with an account that supposedly occurred late in that year. I say supposedly because it might be an imagined conversation between the Hashemite Ali bin Abi Talib and the Umayyad caliph during the final calm before the storm of opposition which was about to hit Medina. I also found this narration to be unique for how sharply it critiques Uthman while simultaneously sympathizing with him quite convincingly. Ali is said to have gone to Uthman after being asked to speak to him about his behavior by many people. He opened by telling the caliph that although many have asked him to speak on their behalf, he did not know what to say, since Uthman had heard it all before. He reminded Uthman that the Prophet held him in equal esteem to his predecessors, 
and that there was no reason he couldn't match their just government. I just love how this narration starts. It sets the context for the recent past is filled with complaints about the caliph and contrasts it to a just and idyllic past, which Osman was hoped to live up to. Osman gets an eloquent reply in this narration, saying that he indeed had heard it all before in the last few years, but that he couldn't understand any of the opposition, saying that he would never have rebelled so brazenly against authority if, say, Adi had done whatever he had liked as caliph. Note the recasting of opposition as sedition, transforming the caliph from being deaf to the people's complaints to being tolerant of their disloyalty. Uthman concluded by adding that the people complained about his governors, but that he chose Qurayshis just like Omar had. He was technically correct. The Umayyads were indeed from Quraysh, and so he was just continuing the precedent set by the first two caliphs. Never mind his strategic blindness to how his clan and their loyalists had a virtual monopoly on all political power within the caliphate now. The narration then shifts to a quick back and forth with uh, short or pithy replies from both sides. Adi starts by saying that Omar was much stricter with his governors than Uthman was with his kin, stressing the close relationship these men shared with the caliph. Uthman tries an appeal to tribal unity by reminding Adi that they were his kin as well, to which Adi replies that virtue was more plentiful in others, putting an end to that angle. Uthman again tries to take refuge in the previous caliph, saying that it was Omar who appointed Muawiyah as governor to begin with. This earns him a snide reply from Adi, who, who says that Muawiyah was more scared of Omar than Omar's own servants were. He ended by reminding Uthman that under his reign, Muawiyah had often acted in ways they both knew Omar would never have allowed on his watch, and that Uthman had not once chosen to punish his kin. None of these instances are detailed here, but I'm sure he's referring to the general decadence and favoritism which permeated the official parts of the caliphate during Uthman's reign. The next time Uthman addressed the people, he started by berating his opposition, saying that everything has a flaw and that the flaw of his ummah were the jealous few who only sought to spread dissension. He marveled at how Umar was loved for his strictness, while that after taking advantage of his good nature he was faulted for his kindness. Finally, he made a heartfelt plea that he truly had done his best for the caliphate, saying that if those opposed to him didn't agree with his use of the ummah's wealth, then he couldn't understand why the caliph didn't have the right to administer his treasury. Towards the end of his speech, Uthman's cousin and counselor, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, suddenly interjected and threatened violence on anyone who tried to take the leadership out from Umayyad hands. And the narration ends with the caliph telling everyone to pipe down as the crowd in attendance erupts in response. I like this story a lot, and I think it's a shame how suspiciously perfect it is as a summation of multiple important themes from this chapter of Arab history. It contains Adi embodying the voice of ideal justice, Uthman helplessly trying to defend his position and undo the consequences of his, let's say, generosity, Marwan threatening to put all the tribal loyalists empowered by his cousin's administration to violent use, and even allusions to Muawiyah's unchecked power. It's a real jackpot of a narration, and as such, it is probably too good to be true. One last thing before we begin our discussion of 656. I should introduce you to the two figures from Egypt who will play an outsized role in today's events. The couple had a lot in common. They were both named Muhammad, both were children of prominent early Muslims who were later adopted by other prominent early Muslims, and both were hostile to Uthman's government, though for different reasons. You might remember one of them from last time, when we mentioned that Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, son of the first caliph and stepson of Ali ibn Abi Talib, was a rallying point for anti-Umayyad sentiment in Egypt. 
The other mo was Muhammad ibn Hudayfa, stepson to the caliph himself. His biological father had died fighting for Islam under the Prophet, and Uthman became responsible for the boy, most probably after marrying his mother, though the marriage is a point that some histories contest. Muhammad ibn Hudayfa's enmity towards his stepfather is usually described as a product of stimid ambition. He felt entitled to a leading role within the caliphate, and he was resentful at not receiving the same treatment his Umayyad stepfamily was getting. The only time these two Muhammads are mentioned prior to 656 is right before the Battle of the Masts, four years earlier. There is an account reporting that Abdullah bin Abi Sarh had heard the pair inciting some troops against their commanders and caliph, telling them that those in charge of them were their true enemies and so on. In response, the governor is said to have ordered them to boat a boat alone during the naval battle, and they in turn declined to join at all. If this narration is accurate, then it seems like the two would have been quite practiced at agitating against their government by 656, something which would explain why they were so effective at it. As the descendants of other prominent early Muslims, they were never disciplined like other upstarts would have been, and it wouldn't have been a good look for neither the governor nor the caliph. Uthman did once send his stepson some money and silks to try and win him over, but Muhammad ibn Hudayfa displayed these gifts at the mosque as proof of how corrupt the caliph really was. The chaos in 656 starts quite abruptly, and the one narration I found which may explain its origins is unfortunately unreliable otherwise. It says that during the pilgrimage season of 655, when Uthman's popularity was at its all-time low, a number of disaffected troops from Fustat, Basra, and Kufa met in Mecca. They talked about how the Kufans had successfully forced the caliph to change his Umayyad governor there, and they made plans to return the next year in much larger numbers to force Uthman to accede to wider reforms within the caliphate. This narration makes sense to me because it stresses the timing of the pilgrimage. It really is the only time of year where hundreds of troops could converge around Mecca without being suspicious. Abdullah bin Abi Sarh was in Medina in the spring of 656, probably discussing the troublesome discontent in Egypt with the caliph. He left some guy in charge, although the sources don't really agree on who that was. Apart from being yet another reminder of how unreliable oral histories can be, it doesn't really matter, because that's the moment which Muhammad ibn Hudayfa chose to strike. He rallied some of the disaffected troops, kicked the provisional governor out of the city, and took the palace Abdullah had built for himself in Fustat. He then sent about 700 men out to the capital, intent on forcing the caliph to replace their unpopular governor and reform his ways more generally. The Egyptian troops camped right outside Medina. Some of their leaders entered the city to ask its prominent citizens how best to proceed, and it seems they were welcomed by many. Ali bin Abi Talib, however, warned them against the evils of storming the city and advised them to stick to their method of sending small delegations to discuss their concerns. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was already in the capital, and his closeness to both his stepfather Ali and the rebels made sure that Ali's counsel was heeded. Uthman did not want to meet the rebels or any of their representatives, saying that he worried it would set a precedent and only encourage this sort of behavior. He asked Ali and Muhammad ibn Maslama, the previous caliph's incorruptible spymaster, to act as his negotiators instead. It's important to note that at this time of need he could only rely on non-Umayyad advocates, and these two were the best possible choices, a Hashemite cousin of the Prophet and one of the most distinguished of the Ansar. The pair listened to complaints put forth by the rebels, spoke to the caliph about them, and finally got him to promise to address their concerns thoughtfully. Their complaints are familiar to us by now, 
nepotism, taxation, bad governors, and too little local control of the revenue from the conquered lands. The rebels were satisfied with the caliph's promises and Ali and Muhammad's word to see them through, and they prepared to set out on their journey back to Fustat. That wasn't so chaotic, right? Well, it's about to get a whole lot messier. We're told about a number of speeches given by the caliph after the troops were gone. This set of three are often mentioned together, but once again, stories told about this period contradict each other very deeply, and so we have to focus on what gets repeated the most. In the first, Uthman, under Marwan's influence, some sources insist, gave a sermon in Medina in which he boasted about how the rebels had been misled by greedy would-be usurpers, and then after coming to the capital in person, had seen his obvious virtue and voluntarily withdrawn all their complaints. Many in attendance were upset by this, and Adi and Muhammad quickly pressed the caliph to take what just happened with the Egyptian rebels way more seriously. Uthman is then said to have given another sermon in which he owned up to all the ways in which he had failed the ummah. He promised to rule more like his predecessors and asked people to give him any advice they thought would help. This moved the audience greatly, and they all assured him of their loyalty and their faith in his abilities to live up to the ways of their dear departed prophet. Marwan, however, was not a fan of this second speech. He is said to have shamed the caliph in private, telling him that no good can come from actions compelled by fear. He advised his cousin that when under attack a person should show courage, not compliance. The caliph, convinced that he had shown terrible judgment, would not face the people for three days, and finally he asked Marwan to address all those who wanted to speak to him. Marwan's speech was more of a rant in which he accused everyone who had any advice for the caliph of being a usurper, out to wrest power from its rightful place, in our hands, as he put it. He went on to insult them further, and finally, he threatened those who would not desist with violence. The next time the caliph tried giving a sermon at the mosque, he was shouted down by angry cries asking him to abide by the book of God, and prominent companions of the prophet like Aisha, Muhammad ibn Maslama, and the members of the electoral council now totally abandoned him. Meanwhile, on their way back to Fustat, but just a couple days away from Medina, some of the Egyptian troops spotted a messenger trying to get by unnoticed. After recognizing him as a servant from Uthman's household, they searched him and found a note sealed by the caliph's own ring. They opened the missive and discovered that it contained the names of their leaders with orders to punch them as soon as possible. They furiously turned back to the capital at this betrayal, and when they got there, some camped outside like last time, but many went even further by entering the city and laying siege to the caliph's house. Around this time, two smaller rebel armies arrived, 200 men from Kufa and another 100 from Basra. These two camped outside the city, and only a few of their men joined the rebels in their siege. The rebels enjoyed a kind of public legitimacy for the first few weeks as people were truly scandalized by the behavior of their caliph. Some sources blame Marwan for everything, saying Uthman's only fault was that he wouldn't bring his own cousin to justice, but it's really difficult to make a call on such contested history. What does seem to be clear is that the majority of Quraysh felt like Uthman was just reaping what he'd sown, and a good example of this can be seen in Aisha's reported behavior. She is said to have turned down requests by Uthman's loyalists to stay in the capital and use her influence to dissuade the rebels, saying that she saw the justice in their struggle, and that Uthman had brought this upon himself by not appointing other Qurayshis as governors. And after rebuffing Uthman's loyalists, Aisha left to attend the pilgrimage in Mecca not too long into the siege. The remaining members of the Council of Early Muslims were also of little help to the Caliph in these dire days. We've already mentioned how Ali bin Abi Talib had tried to act as an intermediary between the rebels and Uthman, 
the first time they came around, but now that the caliph had betrayed both his trust and the rebels, there was little he could do. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas and Al-Zubayr are only mentioned in a few narrations in which they declare their neutrality, citing the Prophet's teachings on the importance of abstaining from activities which lead to dissent. Talha is the only early companion who is implicated in the uprising in multiple tellings. He isn't depicted as any sort of mastermind, but as someone who supplied the rebels with food from his personal stores generously, especially in the earliest days of the siege. Osman continued to lead prayers in the mosque for the first couple weeks, but after an argument escalated to a scuffle one day, he remained secluded in his house, at times addressing the people from his roof or his balcony. The siege began as a peaceful affair, and everyone was allowed to go about their business. The rebels felt justified in their actions and maybe even certain that things were going their way. Despite his tribal tendencies, Uthman fully respected the sanctity of Muslim blood, and even his harshest critics did not charge him with deadly violence towards his opponents. But the longer the siege went on, the more aware the rebels became of how desperate their situation actually was. After all, as soon as the pilgrimage was over, there were going to be thousands of Muslims loyal to Uthman whom the caliph could call upon in nearby Mecca. So the rebels must have realized that their position was only getting more precarious with time. They began pressuring the caliph to give in to their demands by denying the delivery of water into his house, stopping first one of the mother of the Muslims, then Ali bin Abi Talib himself from carrying any to Uthman in person. They demanded that Uthman step down from his role or hand over Marwan, depending on who you're reading, but the caliph would not comply. As their actions became increasingly reckless, conflict was bound to occur. At this point in the siege, about a month into it, the people of Medina feared the rebels, and there were at least 30 people guarding the caliph's palace. These included local leaders, the sons of the council members, and many Umayyads, or their loyalists. One day in mid-June, one of the rebels, an agent companion of the prophet, was hectoring the caliph from beneath his palace balcony, demanding his abdication and so on. An annoyed Umayyad loyalist dropped a rock on him from the roof, killing the old man instantly. The rebels demanded justice from the caliph and that he hand the man over. When the caliph refused, the rebels were outraged. They rallied all night and lit fires around the palace. In the morning they attacked, setting fire to the palace doors and wooden roof. Osman ordered his defenders to lay down their weapons that night, saying that the rebels only wanted him and that there should be no unnecessary bloodshed. Many respected his wishes, but some of the Umayyads tried to make good on Marwan's earlier threats. They attacked the rebels and a bloody skirmish ensued. Marwan was almost killed by a stroke to his neck, but he was saved by his wet nurse of all people, who was still in Umayyad service. Meanwhile, in the palace, at least five loyalists died protecting the caliph. A few of the rebels eventually burst in on him in his room where he was reading his Qur'an with his wife, Na'il, by his side. We are told that she lost three fingers trying to shield him from their first flash, and the old man quickly met a gruesome death. The palace was pillaged, and Uthman could only be buried the following evening. The rebels even prevented his burial in the cemetery, and so he had to be interred nearby. You might think that the Ummah had been here before, having lost its second caliph to the assassin's blade. But when Omar was killed by Fayruz, he survived long enough to put together a council to legitimate his successor, while his murderer took his own life. This time the roles were reversed. The caliph wasn't around to influence his succession, while his killers had all the power in the capital. Join me next time to hear about the frenzied aftermath on the caliph's 
The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. Mm-hmm.